You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet from Greeley, Colorado. Not originally, but for now, originally from Glendive, Montana, also at various points from Hillsboro, Ohio, and New Vienna, Ohio, and Jamestown, Ohio, and Sydney, Montana, from various places. But right now, Garrett Ashley Mullet is from Greeley, Colorado. So here I am. This is May 20th, 2021, episode 58 of season three, episode 123 of the podcast. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the Civil War as a Theological Crisis by Mark A. Knoll. This audiobook I'm listening to right now, I'm almost done with. I've got one hour left. I'll finish that, Lord willing, on the way to the plant this morning. But in the meantime, I want to talk a little bit about some overarching themes. I don't necessarily need to finish that last hour of the book in order to know a thing or two that are worth is worth commenting on. <clears throat> so, in no particular order, I find this a fascinating read because all it is really is just explaining the way that various commentators, various theologians, professors, pastors, writers throughout the United States looked at the issue of slavery prior to the Civil War. You had some folks on the abolitionist side of things saying that if the scriptures condoned slavery, made room for it, then they were just done with the scriptures because a principle had been violated here that was more important to them and was from outside of the biblical text. In other words, they were introducing an extra biblical source of authority and then judging God and his word based on that extra biblical standard. And they found God wanting. You've been weighed and measured and found wanting, as William Thatcher's friends say in A Knight's Tale. You've been weighed and measured and found wanting, God. We have a higher authority than you to appeal to. That's very dangerous. But it does go a long ways, I think, to explaining some of how we've got to where we're at right now. You think about the mid-19th century, early 19th century. It seems so long ago to those of us who don't really stop to think about it. But that's 100 years ago. That's it. 150 years ago. I realize it's 2020 now, not 1920, but still, the Civil War was fought in 1860. 40 years to 1900, another 20 years to get one century ago. 160 years ago is all it is. That's not that long, really, truly. So you have this extra-biblical standard being brought in and at the end of the day, the abolitionists who thought there actually is an argument to be made for slavery being a legitimate institution from the scriptures decided we're just going to throw out the scriptures, if that's the case. 
God is unjust. God is unfair if he didn't outlaw slavery. And we want to outlaw slavery. We are holier than God. We are more righteous than God. So we're going to sit in judgment over God. That's a very dangerous place to be. And yet, here we are. And we have a century and a half of government wrestling with how much hubris to add to the recipe. Just a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more ever-increasing amounts of hubris. On the southern side of things, you had pastors and theologians who pointed out, with merit, I would add, that slavery is in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, God doesn't abolish it. He doesn't forbid it. He doesn't prohibit it. He puts restrictions on it. He puts boundaries around it. He puts guidelines in place for the children of Israel so that there are some protections for slaves. Now, of course, the pro-slavery theology in the South didn't highlight that fact. It decided to stop short of mentioning the restrictions in detail and how the South had codified into law a form of slavery which was predicated on the color of skin, which had no interest in eventually rehabilitating people the way that slavery in the Old Testament was designed to. There was no pathway to freedom, to equal standing, to legitimacy, to becoming a full citizen of the United States of America for slaves in the South, for black slaves from Africa in the South. Also, too, the abundance of mulatto slaves indicated that there was a lot of interbreeding where slave masters were getting their slave women pregnant. Is that biblical slavery? Is that in accordance with this room that God leaves for slaving, for slavery in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Is that biblical? All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial, as Paul writes in the New Testament, just because God didn't forbid it, that doesn't make it a good idea. doesn't mean it's proper. And it also doesn't mean that any old way you might go about it is legitimate and appropriate. Now, some abolitionists in the North, in particular, would point that out. They would say, ah, yes, slavery in general, broadly speaking, is not evil. God does make room for it. He does make allowances for it. He doesn't prohibit it as such. God's word doesn't say that it's evil as such. There are principles which are apparent throughout the scriptures, which are violated by the institution, generally speaking. So we don't believe that it is God's ideal for the human race, for our societies, particularly Christian society. We don't believe that this is the best we can do. But besides that, Slavery in the Old Testament and in the New Testament was never predicated on race, with the exception that in the Old Testament, if you were a Hebrew, you could not take another Hebrew slave. You could not take your fellow Jew, your fellow son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a slave. You could not do that. But otherwise, there was no special prejudice against 
blacks. The pro-slavery theology liked to point to Noah's curse pronounced on his son, Ham. And you do have in Genesis, Noah getting drunk, exposing himself in his tent, passing out drunk. Ham comes in and finds his father naked, goes back and tells his brothers, hey, dad's naked. Check this out. Isn't this funny? Meanwhile, Shem and Japheth back into the tent without looking and lower a blanket over their father to, to, to cover his nakedness. And when Noah wakes up, when he comes to, he is so angry at Ham that he curses him and he says that his descendants, Ham's descendants, are going to be servants and slaves to his brother's descendants forever. Now, I find that a curious, odd argument for slavery. I find that a very curious, strained, weak argument for slavery. And I'll tell you why. Just because, for one, just because Noah pronounced that curse, that does not mean you now have license to do anything you want with the descendants of Ham. That doesn't give you a right. That doesn't give you a blank check. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, how does it work when God says that children are not to be punished for the sins of the fathers, parents are not to be punished for the sins of their children, and yet you're justifying enslaving an entire continent's worth of people based on what Ham did and Noah's curse? Does authority ultimately derive from Noah, or does it ultimately derive from God? And isn't it curious that if the curse that Noah pronounced on the descendants of Ham was supposed to be so unequivocally authoritative as to make subhuman an entire race of people, why does that fact not come up more often in the rest of the Old Testament and in the New Testament? Why don't we see the children of Israel singling out black Africans to be their slaves? Here's the problem with using Noah's curse of Ham as the basis for your peculiar institution in the South. We already know that Noah is out of line when he gets so drunk that he passes out naked in his tent. That's shameful. And also, not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. A fair amount of what we're told was done and said by the characters other than God and Christ. A fair amount of what we're told they actually lived like is just the facts. It's not to say this was a good example. It's not to say you should do this too. It's just to say this is what it is. This is who they are. This is who they were. This is what they did. This is what they said. This is what they were like. So that you have a better understanding of how God related to them and also who God is yesterday, today, and forever. So in the case of Noah, do we now say that because he got so drunk that he passed out naked in his tent, exposed, since he did it, that must make it okay? Well, of course not. Because there's plenty of evidence in the rest of Scripture that that is not okay with God. That is not acceptable. That is not his will for us. 
He didn't make us so that we could climb into a bottle and just reside there for the rest of our lives. Now, there's some interesting scripture at the end of Proverbs that has to do with drink and strong drink for kings, for those who are responsible for giving judgment. And you might just consider the curse pronounced on Ham by Noah, his father, in light of the fact that Noah just woke up, passed out drunk. He's hungover. He's not in a good mood. Maybe this is part of what the advice to King Lemuel at the end of Proverbs is getting at. Whether you're drunk or you're hungover, you're not distributing impartial justice when you're under the influence of strong drink, Noah. And yet that was an argument for the pro-slavery position. I think a very weak argument. I think a very silly one. Whatever curse Noah pronounced, we are not beholden to. We are not obligated And as the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, all things are permissible, but that doesn't make all things beneficial. That doesn't mean that we become a slave ourselves to some curse that Noah pronounced on one of his three sons and his son's descendants. The big problem that I have with social justice is that it makes guilt and repentance into this collective affair instead of it being an individual affair. Individuals within a group have their relationship with God. Otherwise, what sense do we make of Joshua, son of Nun, telling the assembled people of Israel, children of Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He gives them the option. He confronts them. You don't have to honor God and worship God and obey God the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who's delivered us to this point, has provided for us. You don't have to worship him. You don't have to honor him. You don't have to obey him. If you want to go back to Egypt, if you want to worship those gods, you go ahead. You want to worship the gods of the land of Canaan, these false gods, you go ahead. Not me. Not my house. We're going to worship Yahweh, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. That's who me and my house are going to worship and honor and obey. If guilt and justice and repentance are all collective affairs, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that Joshua is able to say that and it stand. It also doesn't make sense when Abraham is trying to negotiate with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because he knows that his nephew Lot is still living in Sodom. Far be it from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked, would you destroy the city if there were 50 righteous in the city still? No, I wouldn't. 20, 10, 5? Nope. Now, of course, there aren't even that many. And God has designs on just getting Lot out of there and then destroying the city. He's still going to destroy the city, but he's going to get the righteous out. We read elsewhere that Lot's righteous soul was vexed daily by what he observed, what he witnessed, in Sodom, but that doesn't make him socially guilty, collectively guilty, just because those around him were doing this bad thing. I think also with slavery, it is this very, very great mistake for us to dismiss the entire history of this country 
as a tale of oppressor versus oppressed, as Howard Zinn puts it in A People's History of the United States, it is a great mistake to paint with a broad brush, to boil things down to slavery existed, therefore it was all the white people's fault because they didn't bring an end to it. Well, you know what? In about 1860, they did. They did bring an end to it. A lot of men died. A lot of men bled. A lot of men lost limbs. And even those who didn't lose life or limbs lost years of their lives in pain and toil, deprivation, hardship, exposure, horror, killing their countrymen to settle the question. And as Mark A. Knoll puts it, as he points out, it was a theological crisis. This was not just a political question. This was a theological question, first and foremost. And the political question was downstream of the theological question. And if we don't give that the attention that it deserves, we will never understand what was at the heart of the Civil War, the American Civil War. We'll never understand why slavery as an institution endured as long as it did in the South in the way that it did. And we'll, un we'll never understand why it was ultimately fought so vigorously, so adamantly, and ultimately successfully, even at great cost in blood and treasure. Mark A. Knoll talks a lot about individuals and what their positions were. The pro-slavery South highlighting the fact that God didn't say it was evil, therefore it must be okay, conveniently ignored the fact that God had put restrictions on the way slavery was to be practiced in Israel by his people. If you're going to have slaves, here's how you need to treat them. Here are the terms. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's not talk about that. Nope, 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 nope. Nope. Nah, 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 nah. I can't hear you. Nope. Hmm, interesting. So what does that say about the way that you see God's word? The way you relate to God? Do you really have any fear of God? Or is this just convenient for you to make the argument that you're making and stop short of going the whole way? What is the rest of the story? The rest of the story is that slavery in the way that it was being practiced in the South was not biblical slavery. If you want to highlight the fact that God made allowances for slavery, you also have to abide by the restrictions he placed on slavery. Mark A. Knoll quotes someone, I don't remember who, I think his last name was Lewis, but I don't remember his first, as pointing out the distinction and the difference between slavery in the Bible and slavery as it was practiced in the antebellum South. And he points out that slavery in the New Testament was an institution that was normal, common, routine in the Roman Empire. And yet, who was it that was very often a slave in the Roman Empire? Are the Romans a white race? Are they a brown race? They're not quite white, typically. But I'll tell you who was white. Very often, the slaves that they brought back from their campaigns against the Gauls, the Celts, the Britonic tribes, these barbarians in the north, they were very often white. And if they lost in battle, they were brought back to Rome as slaves. Now, when we put things in those terms, how many of the folks arguing so vociferously for slavery to be legitimated are still with you? 
how many of those folks suddenly lose interest when it becomes not a racial thing, or at least not to their advantage. If you're saying that slavery as an institution is given room to exist, it's not prohibited in the Old Testament or the New Testament, but it has restrictions placed on it. For one thing, you have to abide by those restrictions if you're wanting to make the argument that slavery is biblical and it is not antithetical to the Christian life of a person, of a family, of a community, of a nation. But for another thing, you have to be equally okay with a black man owning white slaves as you are with a white man owning black slaves. Or for that matter, a black man owning black slaves or a white man owning white slaves. Why does it just so happen that all the slaves are black and all the slave masters at the time of the Civil War were white? Is that biblical slavery? No, it's not. No. Nope. You're showing favoritism. You're being an unjust judge. And a major test of how Christian this institution is, is how do you relate to the blacks in your care or in your community who come to Christ? Do you regard them as brothers? Ooh, no. Why? There is a greater chasm between Jew and Gentile in the New Testament, and yet Paul the Apostle, as I've mentioned in the past two episodes, confronts the Apostle Peter publicly, rebukes him publicly at Antioch because he's undermining the gospel in the way that he's relating to the Gentiles when the Judaizers show up. There's a greater difference between Jew and Gentile, and yet Paul makes it clear this is a gospel issue. So why were black churches with black Christians segregated from the white churches in the South? When you read the book of James in the New Testament, he cautions against saying to a rich brother when he comes in, here, you sit in the seat of honor, and saying to a poor brother, you sit over there, and becoming unjust judges, showing partiality based on wealth. I think you could substitute their race. That was happening in the South, and it was wrong. It was an indication that there was a heart issue here There is a corrupt attitude, a corrupt mindset towards fellow man. In the Old Testament, slavery was made room for. In the New Testament, slavery was made room for. In fact, you can't understand the apostles introducing themselves as slaves of Christ if slavery as an institution is across the board, always, forever, in every case, evil. Well, that doesn't make sense that Paul or Peter or Jude or James introduce themselves as slaves of Christ if slavery is categorically evil. Now, we have to be smarter than falling into the trap of believing that just because it's not categorically evil, that that means it's always good. You've got to be a little bit more discerning than that. It can be sometimes legitimate without always being legitimate. It's not a all or nothing. Don't throw babies out with bathwater, but also don't be drinking bathwater, used bathwater for the sake of babies 
just because you don't want to throw them out. We can separate babies from bathwater. Once we're done with the bathwater, you, sh you still should throw out the bathwater, but it's not either or. So in the case of this Civil War as a Theological Crisis book, I'm interested to see how it ends up, how it finishes out. I've been told by my cousin Micah Hirschberger that Jamar Tisby references Noel's book at length, repeatedly throughout The Color of Compromise. And I'm curious what to make of that. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything untoward about Mark A. Noel's book, even though I am firmly against Jamar Tisby's. So far, in my reading, it's just the facts. It's just, here's what these people were arguing in the North, in the South, in this denomination, in this church, in this place. Here's what this guy wrote. Here's what this guy said. Here's how this guy responded. Here's what the broader Protestant community around the world thought of the Civil War and of slavery and the arguments for and against the pro-slavery, the abolitionists. Here's what the Catholic community around the world thought of this. It's just the facts. Here's what it is. Now, what you do with it is another matter, but this is what it was. This is what these people said. I so appreciated a recent message by Mike Bunnell at Summit View Community Church introducing the book of Second Peter. He has to address the fact that Peter introduces himself as a slave, as a servant, as it's translated, but it's translated as servant because people now find the word slave offensive. This is not so different from the abolitionists who were hardcore throwing out the scriptures entirely when they had to concede that the Bible makes room for slavery. Their principle of individual liberty was more dear to them. They worshiped that as the be-all, end-all, as the Lord of the universe. And they held it up as the judge over Yahweh God and his word. It's not so far removed from that. In fact, I would say it's a side effect. It's a ripple effect. It's a consequence of that mentality having pervaded, having seeped into our culture here in America over the past century and a half that Bible translations into English try to omit the word slave as much as possible. Anytime it's used in a positive context, like an epistle being introduced by somebody who describes themselves as a slave of Christ, we're going to redefine that word as servant because slave has got some negative connotations. People find that word offensive. People find the gospel offensive too. How far do you go with fudging what it says? How far do you go in saying, we're going to retranslate this, we're going to adjust it until it's palatable to people? I so appreciated Mike Bonnell's sermon because he highlighted the fact that Paul, Peter, Jude, James, others introduced themselves as slaves. Slaves. If they are slaves, then that must mean that slavery is not always only ever an evil thing. And we need to be careful not to be holier than God in the way we relate to it. The topic, the subject. So that's all I've got. That's all I have. 
that's what this is. Interesting history. So far, I would recommend the book. We'll see how he ends up in the last hour or so. If you would, check it out. If you have some additional thoughts, questions, you're curious about the topic, reach out. But I've got to run. I just got a text. There is a piece of equipment down at our Jackson Lake facility. I need to go and check that out ASAP. But until next time, thanks for listening, and God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.